Now, Randy, to be fair, I hate estimation sessions. What it is, is they just never quite go the way you want them to. Hey, Lily. Yeah, estimation is a dark art, to be sure. Now you sound Irish, but this talk has a slight Welsh element, as a lot of the theory was inspired by Kevin. Kevin? You mean that Chopsy guy we met at a networking event back in the day? No, no. Anyway, if you listen on, you'll figure it out. This week, we're talking to Liz Kyo, a lean and agile consultant who wrote an inspirational blog post about estimation that we both absolutely loved. Ah, uh, yes. I'm not going to lie to you, I've quoted Liz a number of times. Okay, okay, enough of the Welshisms. Let's crack on with this very tidy interview. The Product Experience is brought to you by Mind the Product. Every week, we talk to the best product people from around the globe about how we can improve our practice and build products that people love. Visit mindtheproduct.com to catch up on past episodes and to discover an extensive library of great content and videos. Browse for free or become a Mind the Product member to unlock premium articles, unseen videos, AMAs, roundtables, discounts to our conferences around the world, training opportunities, and more. Mind the Product also offers free Product Tank meetups in more than 200 cities, and there's probably one near you. Liz, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, hi, you're welcome. <laughs> for anyone who doesn't already know who you are, who hasn't been reading your, your blogs for ages and follow you on Twitter, who are you? How did you get into producty related stuff? Um, so I have a dead background. I've now been in the industry over 20 years. That's a long time ago. I started with a company that did proper, proper waterfall. Um, so they had a big defense project and there was two years, I think there was a year's worth of analysis and then half a year's worth of high level design and then half a year's worth of other stuff. And then the devs came on board and a year into the devs being on board, I joined and I was in a basement for three years working on this thing. I mean, not the whole three years, obviously, but like, <laughs> they let me out in the evenings. But there were days where I just didn't see the sun um, in the winter and that was not fun. Um, and I eventually left and about a year after I left, that project made it to court and the government and, and this company no longer exists. So I can talk about it. Um, <laughs> this company, they, they were wrangling over the changes that were needed and that have been discovered. And, you know, I, I don't know if it's ever got shipped. I don't know if it's ever worked. Um, then there was another project that it didn't really have a focus. It didn't really have a focus on who was going to use it. And it never quite got out. It was more of a Java training project than anything else. Um, then, of course, you had the dot-com crash and <laughs> the projects we were working got abandoned. And then I joined an airline company and the projects I wrote there, they hadn't talked to the customers enough first. So that had to be redone. And then I joined a company called ThoughtWorks in 2004. And bear in mind, I've been seven years in industry, right? Not one thing I've written has got shipped. <laughs> Not one thing. Um, I joined ThoughtWorks and within a week wrote something which was in Dixon's stores in their Tell software a month later. Um, and it made a huge difference. Uh, it was actually just changing the font on a receipt. But <laughs> I was doing all my accounts at the time. And that, that was so beautiful to see. Like I could actually read the receipt. It was just amazing. And I got very excited about Agile and thought, you know, everybody has to work this way. 
Um, at the same time, Dan North was presenting this little tool he was messing around with called JBehave. And it was a replacement for JUnit. So he took the JUnit starts everything with the word test. It goes test this thing and then it runs the test. And he said, if you start it with the word should, it describes what a class does. So this class should do this stuff. And I thought that's fantastic. And I tried to get it working and it wasn't. So I sent him a fix and then I sent him another fix and then I sent him another fix. And he said, Liz, um, you're on, you're, you're now a committer. Please stop emailing me and just submit these, these changes. I don't want any more emails about this. <laughs> um, so yeah, I got it working. Um, at the same time, he's talking to Chris Matz, who was an analyst back then, business analyst. And Chris said, this thing you're doing where you say, you know, I do this thing and I get this outcome. That's that's how we do analysis, except it only works because you're doing it within a context. So you have this idea of context, event and outcome, given when then. And now we're in BDD territory and Dan and I are going running around the world talking about this exciting stuff with a half finished J behave that doesn't quite work. And that was really great because we could talk to people about how it would work and they'd have the conversations, but then not actually do the automation. And I, I think nowadays something's been lost there. So we're still teaching people to have the conversations about these scenarios, these examples of how your, your system's going to work. So that's kind of how I ended up in the product space was through being a dev writing an automation framework and then moving into analysis because that's what bdd really is and for anyone who doesn't know bdd is behavior driven development dan's got a, a beautiful if you go to a wikipedia page on it you'll see dan's beautiful three line definition that i can't possibly remember but that's i always right. say we'll put it in the show notes <laughs> <laughs> it's using examples in conversation to illustrate how things behave and then turning them into automated tests is a really nice byproduct yeah, I remember when I first learned about BDD and its cousin, uh, Test Driven Dev, a few years back and said, oh, that's a much better way of writing tests and, and doing all this rather than uh, doing it all at the end. But yeah. we asked you to come on today uh, to talk about something that's very near and dear to, to I think, all of our hearts. Um, so product people are often in the job descriptions. It's one of those unstated things that we're meant to be psychic. We're meant to be able to predict the future because our stakeholders, our customers are always asking us, so when can I have it? And that estimating complexity and estimating delivery time is incredibly hard. And it's even harder to communicate to people who say, but isn't it just this? And you have put something together uh, a method, a way of quantifying complexity or a way of describing complexity. And we want to ask you to talk to us about that a little bit. Right. So the, the, it's, it's based on the Kinevin framework, which is not mine. That is Dave Snowden's work, um, created with a bunch of other people. You can go look it up and see the whole history. Um, so the Kinevin framework describes different situations and how to approach them depending on how predictable or unpredictable they are. So there's predictable stuff known outcomes, you can close the gap between it. Analysis works just fine. If you've done it before and you've got some expertise around it, you can estimate it. If you've never done it before, it's unlikely that you're going to be able to estimate it. You're going to make discoveries. So there's two types of unpredictable stuff. There's chaos, which is accident and emergency, a house burning down. It might not be like 
it's not safe to fail. I uh, The first blog I did on Kenevin, Ron Jeffries said, you know, why would you do something even in chaos that's not safe to fail? It's like, because you have no choice. That's what makes it chaos. If you don't get out the burning building, it's tough. Um, there's no safety. Right? If you can make safety, though, if you can, if you can give yourself some time to allow the outcomes to emerge, we're in what's called complexity. So chaos is dominated by emergency and urgency. Complexity is dominated by emergence. So um, you can see with hindsight how things happen, but you couldn't possibly predict it. So based on that, I put together a little scale which helps people work out where the complex stuff is. And I don't worry about chaos because honestly, you shouldn't be doing this if you're in chaos. Just get out the burning <laughs> building already. Find the production bug, turn it off. Um, but for the for the other stuff, I go, who in the world's ever done this before? So on a scale of five, counting down to one, where five is the, the most complex. Uh, five, nobody in the world's ever done it before. It might not work at all. Therefore, any estimates you come up with really are just like... Mm. Um, four, somebody's done it in the world, but not here, not in our organization. We have no access to expertise. Three, somebody in our team, somebody in the org's done it before, or we can learn it from book, we can learn it from YouTube. So we have access to expertise, but we have to schedule that access. That's one of Dave's things as well. Uh, two, somebody in the team's done it before. One, we all know how to do it. So. I asked um, this guy doing a target operating model in a government department. Uh, I, I showed this scale to him and he said, he looked at it, he said, uh, so the fives and fours, that's where the risk is. And I said, yeah, absolutely, because those are the two high discovery spaces, right? Even four, when you know somebody else has done it, you don't know what their context was that enabled them to do it. You don't know what they discovered along the way. You don't know. Uh, how long they took to do it, who got fired, you know. So it's still a high discovery space. Those fives and fours are complex. And he said, so, but the fives and fours are where the value is too. I said, yeah, they're why we're doing what we're doing because we're never trying to provide a new capability. There's always a, an old capability we've already got. We're always trying to provide something new that we've never, ever done before, right? And some, so somebody's going to be able to do something with this in a new way or a new context or it's a completely new thing they can do. So when you find out where that new thing is, because we've never done it before, we can't possibly have expertise, which means we've not made the discoveries and there are unknown unknowns. So I asked somebody, um, somebody once asked me about your estimates, why, why we always so bad at estimating. I said, okay, let's say I estimate something at five days. How much quicker can it be? And they're like, five days i said yeah right so it could be zero days one day two days three days four days five days how much slower could it be any amount of time is a five it <laughs> might not work at all right so and and the newer it is the more discoveries you're going to make and the discoveries have way more room to slow you down than they do to speed you up and if you talk to the Kanban people about this, some of them will go on about Weibull curves and fat tails and what the curve actually looks like and, and how it differs between a startup making tons of discoveries and a bank who are incredibly risk averse. But it's what it looks like. It's got a fat tail. So when we estimate something, we always tend to underestimate it, for one. And secondly, the discoveries will trip us up more than they help us. So when people ask for us, estimates, accurate estimates, and 
I have had so many clients focus on predictability, consistency, measuring how accurate people's estimates are compared to a norm. So many clients. As soon as you do that, what you're saying is only take on work you've already done before. That's what happens. And you'll see devs go, OK, well, this obviously we haven't th thought this through enough. Let's push back. Let, let's do more analysis on that. And so they, they give it back mm -hmm. to the analysts, to the, the subject matter experts who go off and run away and do some more analysis. But of course, you don't know what the discoveries are until you try it. So then they give it to the devs. And then the devs go, OK, well, we made these discoveries. And obviously, the analysis wasn't enough. So go away and do some more analysis next time. And so the next time, the analysts are forced to do even more analysis. And then it's still wrong and still not complete. And you still don't <laughs> discover till you do it. So then the tendency is you get this human craving for predictability that we all suffer. So now the analysts are running off and doing a year's worth of analysis before the project starts, right? And we're back in waterfall territory again, <laughs> right? And you've got these situations where people are having to do huge amounts of analysis in large organizations just to get the budget for the, for the project. Yeah. And when they bring it in, now all the commitments have already been made, all the promises around that scope have already been made. And this is where they come to, to designers and product people and say, you should be able to predict the future because we did all the analysis for you. No, you didn't. You just spent a year's worth of time on something which probably a spike or a prototype would have actually served better. You know, and collaborating with the devs to get something up and running and learn by doing, because it's the only way to get this complex stuff out and working. And you have to be an adult about it. I've got a talk I do called Decision Making for Grown Ups. And the grown up <laughs> thing is going like there is uncertainty. You cannot get away from the uncertainty. You cannot have the predictability that you crave and accept that and work with it. Liz. Oh my God, there's so much that you just covered there. <laughs> I don't even know where to start. But just really quickly for anyone who's um, who's listening to this, Kenevin, the spelling of Kenevin. Kenevin. Uh... <laughs> so I'll spell it for you. I'll spell it for you. C-Y-N-E-F-I-N. And the there funny thing is, I'll ask people who's heard of Kenevin and you know, no hands went up in the early days when I was talking about this. No, nobody's hands went up. And then I write it down and I go so now who's heard of it and like, oh that Sinophin yeah I've heard of that um, <laughs> Chris Matt absolutely loves winding Dave Snowden up by, by mispronouncing it deliberately um, <laughs> and talking about how there are four quadrants they're not quadrants there are domains and there are five of them there's one in the middle as well <laughs> so it's really really interesting and if anyone hasn't looked it up then they should definitely go and take a look at it um one of the things you kind of said there very briefly was about how we always underestimate. That's not necessarily been my experience. <laughs> <laughs> so what like is that just a case of depending on the experience of individuals or is that your experience of generally everyone underestimates or people just get it wrong or they like under and overestimating so generally people underestimate normally if they're overestimating it's because they've been stung by somebody turning estimates into promises right yeah. and and this happens all the time as well um so somebody will make an estimate and somebody else will go great and 
build a bunch of commitments and communicate that estimate to external people and now uh, there's expectations set around it and that's such a shame to me. Um, I'm teaching people to do a little bit of discovery work first so instead of saying you can have these features in July um, saying you know give us to the end of March and then we'll be able to give you a better idea when you can have them and that's based on Chris Matt's real options so you're leaving your options open until you have more information and you're paying a little bit of social capital, a little bit of reputation in order to get that um, space yeah. to do it. Right. If you don't understand how people are using your site or product, you're leaving money on the table. Don't leave money on the table, Randy. That's a waste. But I'm American, Lily. I leave tips. I think maybe we're both being a bit too literal here, Randy. Yeah, fair, tough, but fair. Let's be honest here, though. Traditional analytics alone for your website or product just won't tell you the full story. And Hotjar's behaviour analytics tool lets you see how people experience your site or product and gives your users a voice. Eliminate the guesswork. Use Hotjar to understand how users experience and interact with your product so you can make the changes that matter most. Try Hotjar for free today at hotjar.com slash MTP. I think that's the bit that I find really interesting because that's a, there's a real dialogue there that has to happen, usually between the product manager and the engineers that they're working with to understand you know, do they generally overestimate because they're worried and that look of fear of like, oh, my God, whatever I say is going to come back to bite me in the ass later <laughs> um, and developing that trust between the two that it is that constant dialogue, would you say? Yeah, I mean, I always overestimated as a dev. Um, I rarely underestimated. But the reason I, I overestimated was I, I would make the estimate in my head, which I knew had to be an underestimate, and then I would double it or triple it. Every time. And every time I'd be an outlier and they'd go, why do you think this is five story points instead of two, Liz? And I'd be like, I don't care. I honestly don't care. If you want it to be three, you want it to be two. Can we please just get it done? You know, I, I could. It's um, it's astonishing what actually happens. I was in a portfolio meeting for a bank and they've got millions of pounds of portfolio. They're trying to work out what to spend the millions on. And they've had people go and do these these large scale estimates so breaking everything down working out how much money they need to actually get these large chunks of work done and this one guy saw this card which had um five million on it when yeah there's no way that's going to be five cross it out put three and a half right <laughs> <laughs> this is happening this is happening it doesn't matter what you say the estimates are somebody is going to try and fit them within the constraints further up the chain right so the whole process is just so fundamentally broken um there's a really interesting thing that i saw happen in one thing where you know a dev is asked how long do you think this will take they said it's five days they said it's no way that it's going to be five days it's three days at most and the dev's like sure <laughs> and there's a thing that douglas hubbard taught which nobody ever seems to do and i really really like it he says, OK, let's take your estimates. When do you think you're going to finish this? You think you're going to finish it in five days? All right. How certain are you that you're going to finish it within five days? And we're going to play a game. You can win £10,000. <laughs> I've got a jar here and this jar has 70 white marbles and 30 red marbles. You can either win 
your £10,000 by finishing within five days, or you can draw a white marble from this jar. Pick a marble, and if it's white, you win. Which one of those games do you fancy? <laughs> and I did this with somebody's project. He was like, we'll, we'll finish this project at the end of July. And I said, OK, which you fancy? He said, well, I fancy my project because it's under my control. Right. And he said, the, the project's under my control. So I'll, I'll, I'll pick finishing the project at the end of July. I said, OK, now there's 80 white marbles and 20 red ones. So we're now 80 percent chance of, of getting with the marbles. So I'll go with the marble. Right. So now we've established he's got a 70 to 80 percent certainty confidence yeah. around that estimate so when i hear somebody go take a dev's estimate down from five to three my instinctive response is sure if you're fine with only having a th uh, only i only think there's a 30 percent chance of making that estimate but it's still an estimate and nobody gives the confidence and i'm pretty yeah. sure that half the time they're thinking there's a 50 50 percent confidence right because that's the, the whole myth with estimates is 50 percent or under and 50 percent or over yeah but then they make decisions around it where really you want to have an 85, 90 percent chance of certainty around that estimate if you're going to put those commitments around it. So estimates and T-shirt sizing and story points and all these things in theory are meant to be used at the team level and to help the team work better together and schedule their work. But they end up getting used for all these other things as well. So who really our estimates for? And how do we use them then to communicate within the team and then potentially with other audiences, with stakeholders and, and dependent teams and things like that as well? So there are a couple of other things estimates get used for, and I think it's reasonable. I know I'm a proponent of no estimates hashtag, but actually there, there are a couple of things they go for. Um, one is prioritization. When you know roughly how big things are, you can make decisions about putting your scarce people, time, other resources, money, etc., onto this thing over this other thing because this thing looks like it'll be a quicker win, right? But you only need enough accuracy to be able to make those wide-ranging decisions from that perspective. Um, the second is similar. It's a thing that in complexity think we call coherence. So a probe. Again, this is Dave Snowden's work. A probe has five things. So it's a safe to fail experiment that we carry out in, in complexity. A probe has to have a way of knowing it's succeeding and a way of knowing it's failing, a way of amplifying it if it's succeeding and dampening it down if it's failing, and then coherence, which is a realistic reason for thinking this is a good idea. And that's where the estimates come in is because you can look at the plan and roughly how long people think it's going to take and what order it's going to go in and go, OK, this seems coherent. And the more predictable it is, the more disposed to succeed it will be. But it's probably going to make discoveries along it. So treat the plan like a way of going, is, does this look like a good idea? Does this look like something we could feasibly do? And that's what the estimates for. And again, you only need enough accuracy to be able to say yes or no, and then go off and do all the uncertain stuff, all the stuff that spikes and prototypes and, and get that discoveries in, because that's where you really find whether it's a good idea or not. But people make the plans and then communicate the plans and then go, yes, we will be finished by the end of December. <laughs> and yeah. So it sounds like estimating is really, uh, can be really or much more accurate when you're talking about the kind of level one and level two and the, those levels that you were talking about earlier. So uh, everyone in the world's done it or everyone on the team's done it. 
um, or one person in the team or in the organization has has done the thing. But when you get into the sort of the newer territory, the I guess, which would be more the innovation side of things of it's a brand new thing, it's a brand new way of doing things. Yep. Um, at that point, is there actually any point in doing any kind of estimating? Um, a little bit. So you'll you'll find there's there is always some level of disposition, right? And you can always you can time box spikes and prototypes as well. I always I, I like talking about Mars because Mars is something we we've never sent a person to Mars, right? It's something we've literally never done. It's hugely highly uncertain, but there are all kinds of problems that you have to solve to get to Mars. And they can all be done in little pieces that then come together to get somebody to Mars. And obviously, you know, Elon Musk is, is busy doing tons of things with SpaceX. Um, but there's also stuff happening in Antarctica, which has some similarity to Mars. So we're finding a context in which something is similar and trying out technology there. One of the things that Dave Sloan also talks about is exaptation. So it's the reuse of repurposing of technology for new situations that it wasn't intended for. And I think when we think of innovation, we're always thinking of, yeah, I've got this really great idea. Now, how do we solve it? What he's talking about is we've got these really great capabilities. What else can we use them for? Mm. So the innovation emerges from what you can already do not mm. from some wild idea that you're trying to achieve. And that for me, like that, that's at the heart of emergence. It's where, starting from what you've got right now rather than trying to close a gap. I really love that way of looking at innovation. I think it's it's turns it on its head. So talking about innovation, and I know, Lily, this is more your domain than mine on a day-to-day basis anyway, uh, but talking about innovation, when you're in these complex domains and you're trying to to do something new and interesting, one of the things you said in, in that blog post, Liz, is that in those domains, you we default to trying stuff that's safe to fail. Why is that? Right, because you're going to make discoveries. And if you do something that isn't safe to fail, you won't get a chance to make those discoveries again, right? Um, so the example I always use, this is uh, deploying, right? deploying to production. There are two ways to look at it. One is to rigorously test the thing in production-like environments, which are never quite the same as production because your production data isn't there, etc. So you can rigorously test it and try and make sure you thought of every single possibility. And I will tell you, you probably didn't because you don't know how your users are actually going to use this thing and what date formats they're going to present you with. And there's so many things that people discover once they actually go live. Um, you can rigorously test it and then go live and then go, how did that work out for you, TSB? You know, <laughs> and you're down for a week while you desperately try to get all your bank machines back online, etc. So that's not safe to fail. That was <laughs> trying to make it fail safe. And you don't do that. It, it, does, it doesn't work that way. The alternative is you have a really great rollback strategy. And you test that. Like, if we do deploy something that goes wrong, how do we recover? And that meantime to recovery puts a safety net in place that when it does go wrong, lets you roll back. I, I'm so happy. One of my clients, um, after I'd left, they because they were using my home email, they kept sending me stuff. It took, took a while to get off the mailing list. <laughs> but one morning I got this email saying, yep, so um, the bad news is we managed to tank the performance on our 
XYZ process. Uh, so that's no good. And we've had to roll it back. The good news is the rollback works. And it's the first time <laughs> they ever had to use it. But they, they went live the next day, you know. So a day later, they turned it round and the customers never noticed anything. Mm. And that for me is just so superb. That's, that's really a beautiful thing to see. So it's about how are you going to recover? How are you going to dampen things down? Now, the really interesting thing with that is we're actually pretty good at thinking of all the things that could go wrong. Um, and testers, especially if, you, if you're stuck with this, because I know I'm a dev, I'm a solution focused purpose. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it works on my machine. Right. Go find <laughs> a tester and ask them what's going to go wrong. Um, we're less good at spotting when things are going right. And I always find when I go to retros, they always have the, the hat what's going well. And they'll go, oh, yeah, look at all the things that are going well. But there's never any actions that get put down as a result of that. And that always mm. seemed a shame to me. Amplifying what's already working is one of the simplest ways to get successful probes spreading in your organization. So I said, if, you, if you've managed to get this way of working, how are you going to amplify it? How are you mm. going to make sure it carries on working that way? Do you have a team charter? Do you have a hero or ways of working page that you put it down on so that new people, when they come, can read? Here are the ways we found work here. Do you go and do a brown bag lunch for another team? You know, how do you actually amplify that and, and keep it going? Um, and I've had more change as a coach just spotting what's working on the ground and going can you share that can you keep doing it can you talk about mm. it can you you know then actually just coming in and going well as i used to and back in the agile evangelist phase you're doing it all wrong um <laughs> or even just going have you thought about x you know it's amplifying things is so much so much more fun than coming up with new ways of doing things that may or may not work in their context <laughs> that's a really really good point I don't think I've ever seen any actions come out of that um that column in the retro either um so we're running out of time sadly because I feel like we could talk about this a lot longer <laughs> um but just before we go wait Lily are you saying we didn't estimate uh how long this conversation <laughs> would be very well <laughs> exactly eight hours of kinev material um i could talk about <laughs> this all day literally all day let's consider this a spike or you know <laughs> um so just thinking about your experience over the years of working with product people what's your kind of top tip for product people because you've been in the business for a while and you clearly know your stuff so i'm really curious to know what do you see product people not do very well that they could just do a little bit better? Um, tell the devs why it is you're doing what you're doing. Uh, really just clarify the, Im the impact you're hoping for, what it is you're trying to achieve. Um, be really clear about the priorities because then the devs can help solve the problem. And what I see product people do a lot is go, I've got an idea of how you will solve this. Here is what I want you to do. Yeah. It's fine to have an idea of how to solve it. You can also communicate that if you if you you know you understand the space, you've seen people solve it before. Great, share the expertise, but share the problem, share the why, and be really super clear because then the devs have space to innovate and try things out, and you get the conversations that I've seen with the best teams I've worked with where 
a couple of devs come up and they go, yeah, that thing you asked for, it's really, really hard, it turns out. We made these discoveries, but we've got this other idea that seems to work. What do you think? And now it's a partnership. When I've had dev teams or or even design teams that are reluctant to participate in that conversation, sometimes I deliberately give them a bad solution. I but <laughs> along with the, the problem and say, this is how I would do it. And just so that they have something to be angry about and say, no, that's stupid. Here's a much better way of doing it. Nice. Nice. That's like when I really need design resource and then no one's available. So I start doing designs. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly, all these designers appear. <laughs> so if I can share one tip as a last, a last thing, we did actually do that on one project. Um, when you're in properly complexity, you do multiple parallel probes. We got three devs independently to come up with the design. And neither of our designs was good on its own. But we were able to combine them and come up with something that was actually really, really magical. So even without that expertise, very naively, you can get really good results by trying things out in parallel, independently, not letting people talk to each other. It's called the shallow dive into chaos. Chaos is also mm. the space for mm. urgent opportunity. It's normally regarded as bad pace speed, but there are ways to use it productively. So that's on my blog as well. You ever want to look it up? Awesome. We will put a link to it. And Liz, thank you. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Uh, thank you very much. You've made it very easy. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to apologize retrospectively to all my lovely Welsh Go Compare colleagues and the rest of Wales for my poor interpretation of Welshisms. And just so you know, Lily was the one who wrote the script for the intro today, so if you're feeling tamping, just let her know. Also, if you're feeling like I don't say any of these right, there's probably a good reason. Our hosts are me, Lily Smith, and... Me, Randy Silver. Emily Tate is our producer, and Luke Smith is our editor. Our theme music is from Hamburg-based band POW, that's P-A-U. Thanks to Arna Kittler, who runs Product Tank and MTP Engage in Hamburg, and plays bass in the band for letting us use their music. Connect with your local product community via Product Tank, our regular free meetups in over 200 cities worldwide. If there's not one near you, you can consider starting one yourself. To find out more, go to mindtheproduct.com forward slash Product Tank. Product Tank is a global community of meetups driven by and for product people. We offer expert talks, group discussion, and a safe environment for product people to come together and share learnings and tips. Mm-hmm.